Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Isabella Kaminska. Today, we're bringing you the second edition of our movie review. We take movies from the deep, dark crevices of the past, or just the 80s, and see whether the economic messages buried within them still resonate today. And on this edition, I'm joined by Gavin Jackson, the FT Economics reporter, and Thomas Hale, Capital Markets correspondent. But we also have a special guest today. It's Martin Sambu, author of the FT's Free Lunch Daily email, economics commentator, and all-round big brain on all matters cultural and economic. Guys, say hello. Hi. Hello. Hello. We're recording this podcast the week after the Trump won the US presidential office. So what better excuse than that than to look back to an era of similar political uncertainty, depression and technological change? Consequently, on today's podcast, we'll be analysing the work of Charlie Chaplin, The Little Tramp. Three movies in particular, the 1925 film The Gold Rush the 1931 film City Lights, and my personal favourite, the 1936 film Modern Times. To begin with, I thought we'd start with the basics. Martin, um, looking at Chaplin was your idea, so tell us a little bit about what drew you to the films and why you think they're still relevant today. Yeah, I suggested Chaplin uh, partly... Well, he is one of the greatest filmmakers of the 20th century. He's also one of the greatest clowns of the 20th century. And I mean clown here in the, uh, in the good sense, right? Not a figure like Trump, but clowning as an, as an art form. He was really, he really perfected the art form. The films are funny. Uh, it's kind of old-fashioned. A lot of it is sort of old-fashioned slapstick comedy that, you know, you don't really, it feels, feels kind of old. But he does it so elegantly and beautifully that it's actually quite nice to watch. And beyond that, he has this, deeply human uh, touch both to you know we can use big words like the human condition and the big questions of of love and friendship and despair uh, but there's also a big political and social dimension of his films and uh, the films we're talking about are the ones from the late 20s and early 30s and that is a period that has a lot of echoes today so i thought that was another reason why uh, why they're interesting finally a very personal reason for me is that as a father to a 4 year old i realized these are films that people of all ages really can watch and be entertained by together and uh, you know if there are any listeners out there with kids these are actually good films to start to talk about social and political themes before we get to the actual films, I thought we'd spend some time talking about Chaplin himself and also the era and context he was living in. So, I mean, Martin, give us a, a glimpse of what was going on back then and a little bit of your own insight into Chaplin's life and what you find interesting. Chaplin lived a long life. He was born in 1889 uh, in London born into poverty and destitution, uh, and born into a family, uh, not so much a family, actually, because his, his parents split up when he was a, a baby. Um, but both parents were entertainers in the acting and singing profession, the vaudeville, vaudeville scene. Uh, 
he had a very tough childhood. His uh, his mother was mentally ill uh, at various stages in his life. His uh, his father left them when he was a was a baby. So it was a childhood marked with poverty, violence, disruption. You know, pretty terrible stuff. But he was extremely talented and did well on the stage in London, then touring, then went to America uh, in 1913, I believe, and very quickly got into the film industry. And, and the rest is history, if you like. He was enormously successful from the start and soon enough started his own studio, became independent, became very wealthy and uh, uh, very successful. So it's a sort of rags to riches story. That's part of it. But also he made films that really touched on what was going on in society at the time. So he was uh, he always remembered his own humble origins. But of course he knew the great Gatsby life, if you like, the life of the, of the super rich because he was one of them. And in a lot of his films you see that contrast between the very poor and the very rich living cheek by a jowl, which was this great tension in the big new metropolis of the new world. So... Guys, I mean, there's a bit of a question as to whether or not he's um, a, a so-called communist, uh, because that's one of uh, the themes that runs through a lot of his work is this, as you say, this divide between the rich and the poor. Gavin, Tom, what do you think? Well, I don't think it'd be quite right to call him a, a communist. And maybe this is something we should get on later, because his films, to me, and he, they didn't really seem to have the kind of traditional Marxist theological theory of class struggle in which, you know, two impersonal forces fight against one another to overcome them. They're, they're like what Martin said about him being very human. It's always a human figure with the class struggle, of the class war, if you like, as a backdrop rather than the central tension within it. So I think, you know, it, it, maybe in the climate of, of McCarthyism, you could accuse him of being sympathetic to the idea of the USSR, but he wasn't really what I would call a communist. He was probably on the centre-left or, or the left, but not to that level of extremeness. Just on Gavin's point on McCarthyism, I think he was investigated in the post-war US for suspicion, like many figures in the media and the arts were, for suspicions of communism. But in terms of his films and the films we're talking about today, I got more of a sense of him as a kind of uh, almost a removed commentator on, on many of the social and historical themes in that era rather than someone necessarily engaged in a, in a particular political ideology or a particular pushing a particular agenda. Um, he seemed more of a commentator. Chaplin himself never said he was a communist. Uh, he was clearly a sympathizer. He, was, uh, he had many friends in the Soviet Union. He, he uh, accepted awards. Uh, I mean, he called himself a citizen of the world, which is interesting today, given how uh, <laughs> that, that's an expression that's been denigrated by the UK Prime Minister, uh, one of the great... British citizens of the of the 20th century called himself that, but at a time when in America, calling yourself a citizen of the world, which he said when people complained that he hadn't taken U.S. citizenship, was to many people kind of, you know, almost synonymous with being anti-American, un-American, and a communist. He, I don't think he was ever a member of the Communist Party. I, I would say he probably was a socialist. So, so I agree, it's not, you know, his films... Uh, aren't first and foremost about the class struggle in this abstract Marxist sense. But I think they are very often about how the class struggle feels, and especially for those who, who are at the short end of it, right? The the workers, or even worse, the unemployed, the proletariat, uh, the dispossessed. Um, 
so you know, I I think he has quite a lot of common with you know, if we want to go very philosophical here, the the young Marx rather than the older Marx, the Marx of the uh, the manuscripts of the eighteen forties rather than Marx of the capital of capital. I mean, M- Marx were focused on alienation exactly, rather than Marx focused on exploitation exactly. I mean, given all that, I think it's time to go into the first film, which is The Gold Rush. Um, Tom, you had um, a sort of theory that it foreshadowed the, the Depression in many ways. In, in part, yes. Um, also, I mean, the version I watched of this, it's quite difficult to find the original version online, but there is a 1942 edit of The Gold Rush with Chaplin's voiceover throughout the film and some subtle changes in the structuring of the film, which I think make make the case stronger that you know when you watch the gold rush now you can see the depression in there because this was such a dominant afterthought for Chaplin in the 40s i mean there are, there's there's such grand scope in the film about the kind of the, the span of us history a lot of the film is about simple as Marcy was saying simple basic needs of the proletariat hunger starvation that the, the protagonist in the film is searching for gold in alaska searching for opportunity there's a there's a great scene where they've got nothing to eat and they 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 cook a boot. He boils a boot, and they carve up this boot. And Ch- Chaplin choreographs his comedy in such a way that he's almost got this well-practiced way to carve up this boot. He kind of splits it like a fish and eats it in a very specific way, almost as though hunger, starvation was so normalised that there was a blueprint for eating clothing. And of course, one of the one of the the great images from the Depression was starvation was queues for soup kitchens. It's, it's easy to forget how. how present hunger was in the daily lives of people watching Chaplin films. The other great image from the film, I thought, was um, a house perched on a precipice. And on the other side of the precipice is the the gold mine where one of the heroes, Big Jim, has found this gold. And this house is teetering on a cliff. A lot of the comedy is about, will the house fall off the cliff or not? And they eventually get out of the house on the other side. And as they as they release themselves from the house and land on this gold mine, the house literally falls off the cliff. I mean... I don't want to stretch things too far, but if you wanted a kind of visual metaphor for the role of, you know, gold, monetary expansion, and the impact it has on house prices falling off a cliff, then you don't need to look much further. I think the metaphor works really well, and it and it goes further than that because, you know, this is nominally about let's say the Klondike Gold Rush, eighteen ninety eight, right? So this is the film was in nineteen twenty five, so that's still within living memory. But what was going on in nineteen twenty five? four years before the the big Wall Street uh, stock market crash, was a bubble, right? Think 2003, 2004, house prices going up, stock prices going up. I mean, the gold rush is the ultimate metaphor for the get-rich-quick get dream, right? Which you see in every bubble. So this is also, when it was made, I think very much influenced by how people behave in a bubble. Anyone can suddenly get rich quick if they just, you know, take... Risks that don't seem like risks, and then too many people do it, and then the then the bubble pops. And when we say anyone, I mean even a tramp, even the most incompetent kind of bumbling tramp, can can become as he does a millionaire from from gold in that film. Yes, yeah, so I think this is a good moment to talk about uh, the character that Chaplin plays in all three of these films, who's the, the tramp. And this was a character that that Charlie Chaplin came up with when he was working at the Keystone Studios. And he just came up with it because he, he went on, uh, put on two two baggy trousers and two tight waistcoat and a, a bowler hat. You're probably familiar with the image if you're familiar with Chaplin at all. And this is the character he plays through all three of the films, though he has different names in each one. And he's kind of a this odd, awkward mix of vulnerability and, and naivety. Essentially, he, he he looks he's very small, he's very malnourished, he's wearing odd fitting clothes, 
and things sort of happen around him or happen to him by accident. He's an agent of change, but not almost deliberate change. You're right about the vulnerability uh, and the and you know being at the mercy of these social forces, right? And at the same time, um, the character is sort of a vehicle for this um, a sort of fortitude, right? There's this attempt, constant attempt at maintaining dignity in the face of really bad adversity. I mean, there's this wonderful scene in City Lights where he tries to keep some sort of pride when these newspaper boys are making fun of his tattered clothes and pulling a finger off his glove and so on. Um, And that probably reflects his own upbringing and his sensitivity to the condition of poverty. How do you maintain pride and dignity when everything seems to go against you and you struggle to just maintain the basic social functions? And, you know, I think that sort of theme may be one of the themes that we see at play in politics today, the kind of lack of pride or the struggle with dignity in the left-behind parts of the population. But I would just jump in here and make the point that Chaplin seems to like to make fun of uh, tragedy and he likes to take advantage of absurd situations that I think in the gold rush it's really epitomised by this idea that people will go to the ends of the earth to seek like gold and this supposed source of great wealth and in reality you know when you get there there's you know there's totally uh, engulfed by poverty they're eating their own shoes etc and I thought that entire episode is very indicative of his his mentality um, with respect to this um, absurd situation and also um, it's interesting to note that he was apparently inspired by watching the real authentic pictures of of the Klondike um, gold rush pioneers going over the Chilkut Pass and then um, uh, you know you'll you might have seen the the pictures they they depict these huge undulating snake lines of people walking up the pass most of them will a lot of them would have died and i think he was really struck by it and that's why he wanted to do the film well i think there's another thing in that in that film i want to mention which is the he seems to take a a view of wealth that it's almost random so the very end he strikes it rich right and some newspaper men come to to interview him this famous tramp who got rich and they ask him to put on his old tramp clothes so he does, and then he falls over, and suddenly he's the tramp again. That you know, wealth is almost something that's just random that happens to you, and it's distinctive. And it's also you can see that in your description of his of his life was, was that he experienced poverty, experienced wealth, and so he saw, sort of saw the difference, the distinction between the two classes was a bit arbitrary. The thing that's related to that you see in in each of these films actually, there's a love story. I mean, he was a very sentimental, romantic guy and filmmaker as well. I mean, his in his life he had. I don't know how many women's stories, but four wives and and many more liaisons. Uh, but in uh, the Gold Rush, he falls in love with the most beautiful girl in the in the Gold Rush town, and she sort of humors him for a little bit and then kind of forgets about him because he's poor, he's uninteresting. So there's this point about how if you're poor, you kind of lose out in that game, but also a point about how the important things in life, love, your ability to love and to be of assistance to others, is not at all correlated with how rich you are but that's what society values and that theme comes back again and again just on um, gavin's point of how so much of the humor here relies on this figure of the tramp who is this kind of he has agency but he's almost floating around in the world things the world impacts itself upon him and he doesn't he he has an effect but he's kind of agencyless in some respects there's all these coincidences so much of the humor relies on coincidence you know, um, this part of the pavement is sliding open at just this time or this thing is falling at just this time. 
I think we can kind of broadly tie this type of humour itself into trends going on at that time in history with the way people understood historical change. At a time of vast um, economic change, where events felt like they were out of people's individual control, there was a, there was a move towards pointing towards chance and randomness in explaining the direction of history, the, the direction of events themselves happening. And I just thought, when I was watching the films, and I was reminded by what Gavin was saying, there was there's a sense that the humour, whilst it works on a very physical level, also seems to reflect that kind of that kind of philosophy. That's a really interesting observation, and it makes me think that this is a reason why these films are more relevant again today, because we've been through a period... You know, people sometimes call it the great risk shift, right? Where more individual risk has fallen back on individuals after a post-war social democratic era where a lot of risk was socialized. Now people face much more risk in their individual lives. And we've also seen technological change, massive technological change that can make a multi-billionaire out of someone who puts together a website in their in the garage, right? Yes, I, I would say that Bitcoin is definitely the modern uh, Klondike rush, right? You know, the gold rush equivalent. So moving on to City Lights, the, the, the format of the film being, I mean, there's kind of two stories, one in which um, Chaplin uh, saves this millionaire from suicide and uh, the, the millionaire is an alcoholic and, and, you know, he loves Chaplin for saving him, or the tramp, sorry, for saving him, but he only recognises him when he's drunk and he gets all these into all these uh, adventures with this millionaire and at the same time he falls in love with this blind flower girl who, you know, is basically in need of welfare at a time when the welfare state wasn't in the form it's in now. And and basically, Ch- uh, Chaplin's character acts as this kind of um, almost impersonal transmission mechanism between the tremendous opulent wealth of the millionaire who gives away his car, who has too much money, who doesn't need the money, and this, this kind of uh, pure, innocent, blind, struggling beautiful girl who is in need of welfare, in need of an operation from a, importantly, a Viennese European sophisticated doctor and can't afford it. And the the whole, you can read that film simply as Chaplin being the transmission from the rich and the poor. I would just also add that um, I think it's really interesting that if Chaplin's like the voice of commonality between all men in the in the film City Lights um, it's this idea that the billionaire, millionaire at the time um, doesn't really uh, tend towards benevolent acts unless he's drunk and I think there's a famous quote from Chaplin that says a man's true character comes out when he's drunk. And I think that's really telling of uh, his perspective on what wealth really means. It's almost like a, a regimentation of your feelings and a suppression of your, your core humanity, which, you know, is done away with when you're allowed to be free in the sense of a drunk person. I mean, inebriation as a great equaliser, right? It's... It's getting the characters drunk is a comedic device for showing, actually, we're all in this together. And then obviously asking the question, why isn't society organized accordingly? Because it isn't. Uh, so as you pointed out, the, the drunk, the millionaire only recognizes Chaplin as his friend, as a common human being that he even cares about when he's drunk and then immediately returns to distance when, when he's not. Also, perhaps more cynically, we could see it as charity only happening when rich people take leave of their senses because they've become intoxicated. 
Okay, so on that note, um, I thought maybe another interesting observation is that there's a sort of element of Jekyll and Hyde with the millionaire. Like he's by day quite horrible, like horrible. He doesn't care about any sort of welfare distribution. But when he becomes Mr. Jekyll at night, suddenly he will give the money to the to the blind girl. And then there's the um, mistaken identity or rather the mistaken um uh, being mistaken for a thief when he isn't. And I think this is an, is another theme that runs through all the Chaplin films in so much as he, he always finds himself in the position where he has accidentally ended up being the culprit when really he's not to blame. And I think, Gavin, you were making the point that that sort of uh, epitomises his general like vulnerability and naivety um, within the social setting and I was just wondering in terms of like the setting itself there's obviously an urban connection he is a he is commenting about the urban state and I think because he always finds himself in these weird um, complex situations with the authority I personally see him as having quite a complex attitude towards authority and towards the police in so much as the police you know he's always in and out of jail um, and yet the it's not necessarily seen as such a bad thing going to jail and I think I see it as jail represents almost a form of discipline but also a form of welfare in its own right. Well just to briefly jump to modern times which I know we'll go into more detail later um, one thing interesting thing about that film is they refer to the state frequently as the law um, which was alien to me in the language of the 21st century if you talk about orphan there's orphan children in that film and uh, it's a silent film and something just comes up on the screen that says the children were taken control of by the law you know even the act of provision for what for orphans which is as far away from kind of punishment as we could perhaps think of is is seen as a responsibility of the law not of what we would now call the state i see a pretty strong marxian theme here actually which is to see authority and the social order as something that's put in the service of maintaining property rights so in pretty much all these, a lot of Chaplin movies, the tramp or the equivalent character is framed for something uh, or is punished for doing something that as a viewer you kind of see in the desperation he is in, you kind of feel sympathetic. So in City Lights, viewers don't really mind, even when he does try to to get to hustle some money out of the rich guy in order to help the girl or in order to get some food or buy flowers from her or the operation ultimately. So you can see why this is subversive, right? Because it sort of makes people sympathetic to saying, yeah, you know, the rich one, the rich people have enough as it is, and it's okay if you take some away to help the poorer ones. So it's subversive in the way Robin Hood was subversive, right? Yeah, but but notably, I mean, in, in Gold Rush, he shares the cabin with um, the one that goes off the cliff with three people, one of them and a fellow prospector, who's struggling rich but forgotten where, and the third one is a criminal. And the criminal is presented as a threat, and you know, so there's a there's a sense in which the tramp represents sort of the the good underclass, mm, mm. and that there is also a bad underclass of criminals who who the good people need to be wary of. And I think this is why I I kind of disagree with you in that it's it's Marxist because a lot of what Chaplin seems to be doing to me is a kind of old fashioned moralism where there are good people and there are bad people, and the tramp just happens to be one of the good ones. In City Lights, one of the real compl- complex characters there is the butler. So many, of, so so frequently as the viewer, we feel the injustices imposed upon the tramp figure when he's unfairly thrown out of the house for being a thief are the result of this butler who doesn't quite know what's going on, doesn't have access to the information, the knowledge, and the scenes that the viewer has, and and doesn't understand the, the friendship that's developed between these two characters, one of whom has had his life saved by the other. 
the other reading of that is that the butler is the kind of managerial elite. The, 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 the millionaire represents the capital. The butler is almost a technocrat. And, and, and naturally, he is going to be resistant to redistribution of wealth from, from, from the owner of, of capital to, to the kind of underclass because he has a more immediate threat from, from economic uh, competition with, with, with characters like Chaplin's. And if you if you kind of watch it closely, it's, it's normally the butler who's thwarting the tramp in that film. So should we move on to modern times, which is probably, if any of these, the, the most Marxist, or most explicitly Marxist of all these three films, which famously starts with the the scene of Chaplin in, in the factory and he's working along assembly line. I mean, I think not only is it very Marxist in that sense, but the interesting thing for me from the beginning of the film is that the man, that the main boss has a likeness to Henry Ford. And I don't know if that was intentional or not, but I think it certainly was something that I picked up on. I don't know if anyone else found that. The uh, the theme is very much about that. I hadn't picked up on the on the likeness, the facial likeness, but... Of course, the whole theme of this factory is the dehumanization of the individual fitting simply into the production process at the assembly line and so on. So this is Fordism and Taylorism put in practice. This is what it looks like, is what Chaplin is telling us. And of course, that has echoes today as well. Not so much in factory work anymore, but in the sort of routine, mind-nubbing, uh, you know, delivery services, call centers, all of these things that are also deeply alienating in the way they work out in practice. And of course, what happens in the film is that the, the tramp character, Chaplin, goes crazy, right? He doesn't fit into this this mold. And this is wonderfully choreographed scene where he gets caught in the wheels of the big machine. I mean, personally, I, again, I see this as a commentary about risk and uncertainty versus stability, efficiency and cornucopia in so much as Chaplin is sort of telling us that... Um, in some ways, we need the you know the synchronization to create all this machine wealth, but we as humans are not uh, able to cope with that sort of level of discipline. And for me, Chaplin is like the definitive sort of spanner in the works. He's the bad egg, the one that can't fit in with this highly mechanized, synchronized lifestyle. And um, any attempt to try and suppress him as the main guy. Uh, does when he he rolls out this feeding machine, which I think is the iconic moment of the film, is the, um, this idea to really maximise the productivity of the plant. We have to stop the employees from even having lunch. And uh, it's a terrible disaster because obviously Chaplin is, um, is not going to uh, respond very predictably to any of this technology and the whole thing ends up sort of exploding and there's mess and, and it shows that it's really not a viable way to get the most out of humans but the commentary I think is very much focused on this idea that you know when you try to eliminate risk out of the system you inadvertently destabilize it and um, as the kind of vagabond uh, this is a man with no links no responsibilities it's a, it's a very urban phenomenon this is you know we did not have vagabonds before metropolises uh, appeared on the scene at all um, and they really epitomize this um, this phenomenon of of people with no overlords so to speak and just going back to this kind of historiography of coincidence theme in these films which ties into the humor as well um this this is the film for me where everything just he's so unlucky anything that they plan you know some slapstick event will happen which derails everything and that's the humor but that's the tragedy of it at the end they're kind of sitting there broken by it all 
him and his partner and she says there's no hope there's nothing to do and he says you know you basically get her to smile and they walk off crucially into the kind of a rural into the hills almost like a kind of grapes of wrath moving to california moving to the south moving dispensing with the city um halfway through that film as well they move she moves from a urban a cramped urban living space to a their own place which is in this rural environment um there seems to be a lot going on with that film with with the transition away from the city or dissatisfaction with this this modern life in a city so when I saw this, I, I I didn't think it was particularly marked. I thought um, Chaplin and Movedet to be so, in that he see, the tramp is almost like a noble savage, who they try and fit him into the the machinery of modern life, but he will all inevitably escape it because he's he's not corrupted yet by the system. And then the ending when they go back into nature, that seems to be the message to me. It's Rousseau, man is corrupted by the arts and sciences, rather than a Marxist. We can you know take control of the arts and sciences for the needs of the worker. At least corrupted by the way science is marshaled for the uh, for the purpose of of industrial production. Um, th- th- there is that, but the message I think is, is broader. Right? It's not just that Chaplin is a misfit and he's the one who can't fit this modern system. Uh, so it's not just that Fordism and Taylorism works. It's just that there are a couple of you know of misshaped cogs that have to be spat out. The message is broader. I think that this is bad for everyone. It's just that not everyone can resist it. It's the same as you know it foreshadows the Matrix, for example. So the Trump is essentially the one, like Neo is. I guess in the sense of being somebody who sets the example of how life can be approached differently, but but also being quite realistic about the challenges that 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 involves. I mean, there's this really nice scene, though, where he um, gets mistaken for a revolutionary leader and stumbles into this mass protest. Um, And I thought that was quite interesting, mainly because it it, it sent the message to me that when there are these populist undercurrents in play already, it kind of doesn't really matter who takes charge or, or, or kind of takes advantage of those forces anyone can step into the leadership uh, position because those forces are there anyway and the fact that Chaplin can take charge of these people is kind of highly indicative of some you know forces we see today I would I would argue maybe it's funny you say that I thought exactly the same thing I mean the what exactly happens is he's walking down the street he sees a flag he picks it up he does he kind of waves it around because he's a clown and suddenly behind him there's this big mob that he hasn't seen, and he starts walking forward to try and give this flag back to the person who's dropped it, and as he edges forward, he edges forward with the crowd, he becomes the leader of the crowd, and it's an amazing scene of just, again, this coincidentalist view of history, where, which which if you look at how populist uprisings happen, it is not exactly like that, but often it is in some ways comparable to that. The amount of coincidence, sheer chance that involves you know deciding who's going to lead these movements is always very very significant and and in the historical context where this was going on so often it's difficult to think that someone like Chaplin wasn't aware of that when he when he choreographs a scene like that I mean if you read some of the descriptions of Chaplin earlier he's almost reminiscent of an Orwell figure in in his ability to observe to kind of to see the truth in things to, to see things ahead of his time if you read a book like Homage to Catalonia you see precisely the same kind of chaos in terms of the distribution of leadership in an uprising, in a socialist movement. Yeah, and I just want to say, you mentioned Homage to Catalonia. If, 
Izzy has kindly printed off some photos to look at when we're doing this, and you can see that the, the slogans carried by the mob are in Spanish. They're Libertad and Unidad. It's kind of... It seems like a subtle reference to the Spanish Civil War. But, Martin, what, I'd love to get your perspective on whether or not this is also a social commentary by Chaplin on the achievability of the American dream and the fact that the pursuit of happiness is in some ways rendered um, impossible to complete because of the social fabric and the capitalist forces in play. I mean, is that is that fair? I think that's entirely fair. I think in all of these films, it's... Uh it proves to be pretty hard to uh, achieve the American dream, at least through work, right? So in uh, in The Gold Rush, you strike it lucky, but most people don't. And, you know, if, if, if you don't, then uh, no luck for you. Um, in, uh, in City Lights, it's through this sort of slightly corrupted relationship with, with the rich that the formal authorities, and maybe that's what the butler is, do everything they can to stop... Um, and it's only the kind of human passions, the drunkenness and that kind of thing that bring out, and this is this is where the point about morality, I think, is important. It's ultimately, in Chaplin's movies, human individual morality that saves the day, not the system, and often against the system. And finally, in, in modern times, whenever he tries to work, so, you know, he tries to do the right thing, right? What we've heard so much about in, uh, in US politics recently, people have tried to do the right thing but can't get ahead. Well, he's sort of the same, right? He shows up for work, you know, when the factory's closed, he loses his job, and then when they open again, he wiggles his way to the front of the queue to get the last job as a machinist assistant or whatever it is. So, uh, you know, he tries to work to feed his, his wife, girlfriend, his family, to have his own house, to bring food home. So he's doing everything right, but it's it's quite clear that as he wants to describe the system, the system is not going to make that possible, and it's either luck or some sort of individual virtue that will get you there, but the system isn't helping. That That's really interesting. I mean, so essentially it breaks down to three ways um, that you can achieve the American dream. One is through luck, one is through being a sycophant, effectively, and the third one is kind of like what we see now with these monopolistic uh, forces where it's the owners of capital who get all the uh, all the returns at the cost of the employees. I was just, you know, something that struck me when I was reading the commentary around the time of the release of the film, um, there was an interview with Chaplin and they said that one, one of the inspirations for this film was supposedly the fact that as a multi-megastar, he would do a lot of touring. And it was because he was touring and going from one location to the other that he got to see the a really good sort of overview of of not just what was happening in America, but also in other um, areas, although at that time it would have been mainly America. And I just think this resonates with this idea of the urban filter bubble, because if you were in the urban setting, you might have been slightly detached from what was going on in the rural areas. And I think it's really interesting that, that Chaplin may have been influenced mainly because of his capacity to break through those bubbles. I just got to just quickly on um, modern times and this this idea about the the mechanical or the the way the me- these mechanical systems don't quite work work out. There's a bit of a paradox at play there because the way Chaplin's humour works for me actually is in some ways the kind of embodiment of mechanics. It's and and I re- if you read about his method, you know he's this viewed as this great figure in the history of acting. He had some special capacity to to capture things other other actors couldn't capture. And his own methods seem to involve 
Whereas nowadays we might think of people, you know, drawing on their emotions. He 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 just wanted to take care of the physical, and the audience would fill in the rest, almost as though, you know, in the same way this character floats around in an agencyless kind of a way as an actor himself. He didn't. He he almost removed his brain from the process. It was about the body. So whilst that whilst that film, on the one hand, does seem to critique a mechanized vision of society it is also that mechanized format that allows a mechanized approach to humor to find its 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 perfect home i, I sort of disagree with you there i think you're right in the how chaplin worked but i think he, it's more sort of craft than mechanics i said i don't really think of him as a as a marxist he's more of to me like a william morris type utopian socialism like the exercise of creativity a bohemian lifestyle that's what these films are saying to me rather than like reforming the system and taking over the machinery isn't he a libertarian ultimately he could be but also can't there be a craft in the way you design a however grotesque it seems in the way you design a machine that um puts food in people's mouths I wouldn't call him a libertarian because that's where this individual virtue comes in, right? The tramp is always a gentleman. I mean, maybe he has some slips now and then, but certainly towards women, he's always a gentleman. He may occasionally, you know, steal a loaf of bread, but it's usually to help somebody else. So uh, it does seem anti-system, but it's not libertarian at the individual moral level. But you know, on this idea of, of the machine-like nature of, of the work, I think there is something to that. There's a kind of kind of clockwork virtuosity in the way he physically moves. I mean, in, in um, modern times, he was almost 50 years old. I mean, the, the sheer acrobatic skill of it is pretty impressive. But also at the level of the comedy, right? So slapstick is sort of, it's almost about collision, almost physical collision. It's, you know, something is going according to, you know, whatever it's set out to be, and then something either literally crashes into it or something goes off the rails. It's that sort of humour. And that goes back to what you were both mentioning before, the, 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 the importance of coincidence and randomness. So that happens both in, in the comedy of it. I mean, clowning ultimately sort of essentially is about randomness and random disturbances knocking you off course. But that's maybe also the human condition. Also, I think that's all true. Also, there's, I mean, there's an element of the kind of meaning that you can find in, the, in abandoning... The pursuit of meaning. So, I mean, my favourite scene in modern times was the, the scene where he sings, which is a significant moment in the history of Chaplin films because, I mean, he's he's almost mocking, you know, the use of speech in films because he sings, suddenly this silent figure is singing, but he's singing nonsense. And at first you think, could this be European language? We've had Spanish signs in the film. I thought it might be European language at first, but after a few verses you realise it's just gibberish. It's a kind of faux Italian in this kind of faux Italian restaurant. Yeah. But then... As as the verses wear on, they become more and more conversational. And at the end of every verse, there's a punchline. You you know as a listener, there's a punchline to the end of each verse, but it is, there's no language. But you know from the intonation, from his body language, from the jeers of the crowd, that he's delivered some witty riposte or punchline at the end of each of those verses. And it's just a very powerful moment where you realise that it's very easy to overstate the content of words and understate the pragmatics around the delivery of those words. That moment uh, at the end of Modern Times where, where he sings, you're right, it's the first time that you hear Chaplin's voice on, on film. It was the first, in, in all his filmography, that's the first time, 1936. And, you know, voice movies have been in for eight, nine years already by that time. Right? Nobody's doing silent movies anymore. So in a sense, it's, 
I guess. As an artist, it's a statement saying, okay, voice is coming. But in that scene, as you point out, it's the physical comedy that wins, right? Because the sounds, the, the voice doesn't say anything. But it's also actually the swan song because it's the last time the tramp character as such appears in Chaplin's movies. The next movie is The Great Dictator where he sort of retains some of the mannerism, but it's not the same character anymore. So it's, it's a big moment in his, in his um, life work. I think, I think it's really interesting, actually, that um, not only is he commenting on the rate of technological change and what, it, what it's doing to humanity, but he himself is coming out as a bit of a technophobe because he won't adapt to the new talking uh, regime and he's almost silently protesting. And in City Lights, there's this um, really interesting uh, mechanism he uses to, to sort of laugh at the talkies because he does um, already have the ability to do synchronized music and then he uses that at the very opening scene where they're unveiling a statue in in the sort of urban square and he's uh, found to be sleeping overnight in the arms of the statue um, and the speeches are, are a kind of mockery of talking they're like ma 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 it's almost like he's saying I'm not ready to move on or at least I'm not necessarily anti-tech but I'm I just think it has to be slowed down a bit. We need to be ready for it. And also there's that great scene in City Lights where um, he's at the party, which I think the millionaire calls for him. Like he's this kind of prodigal son returned to this millionaire. The, drunk, the millionaire's drunk. He, he throws a party for the tramp and they get this singer in. And again, you know, singing, being, you know, tying into the whole you can now synchronise in, in films. And the tramp himself continually disrupts the singer the singer can't perform because the tramp has swallowed this whistle and he keeps hiccuping and um every time he hiccups it makes a little beep and the singer can't sing or you know quite literally chaplin is halting the technological progress in the way films work in his own film I, there was a double meaning to that scene as well because i really took from that scene the kind of double standards of decorum one of the most difficult things I find when watching old films is to understand what contemporary audiences would have found offensive. Um, maybe they didn't look for um, the signs of virtue that we look for, but they look for very specific rituals um, in terms of the way people behave to judge what kind of background they were from. And to hiccup continually in polite society, I believe at that time would have been an egregious act. It would have been a terrible thing to do. And many people viewing it wouldn't have thought necessarily it was humorous, but it was also a despicable thing to do in polite society, the way you could do that. I mean, the double standards are simply that the millionaire is this raging alcoholic and no one ever complains about that. He's kind of stumbling around himself, uh, you know, in the middle of the street, but he's a millionaire, so he gets away with it. But Chaplin, you know, ev actually evicts himself from that party because he's arguably so humiliated by his own conduct. He can't fit in in polite society. At the end of um, the last film we're discussing, Modern Times, of course, he exiles himself also from almost from society. Right? You mentioned how they leave the city. But it's not just that, because at the end, they have jobs. Right? Things are looking good for them. The girl has a, has a job as a, as a singer. He's a singing waiter. And what happens is that the police catches up with them, and it's because uh, she's a vagrant, which means that it's sort of child services because she's minor, I suppose, wanting to take custody uh, of her and, I suppose, put her into a home or jail or something, but restricting her freedom. Right? And they run away. So they don't only escape the city, they, they escape the jurisdiction of organized society. And that's where, you know, that's again, that's the last time you see the tramp when he walks into this rural sunset, but he also leaves society. And uh, 
you know, it's sort of a mix of defiance and resignation, maybe. In terms of um, influences, though, um, obviously, before we we had uh, modern times in Europe, there would have been Metropolis, Fritz Lang, 1927, I believe. That's obviously a very similar story in some ways. I mean, it's obviously far more technological and, and much more um, dark in many ways. But I think there is a there is a commonality between the two films. And certainly there is a, a common critique of what it means to live in a high functioning metropolis, and at what cost that comes, namely the underclasses. Um, so I was just wondering, like, in terms of the metropolis synergy, do you think Chaplin would have been influenced by something like that? Or I mean, certainly it was a big hit back in the day no i'm sure i mean he obviously will have watched it and it's, it's a fantastic film and was recognized as as such and by the time he made modern times fritz lang obviously had moved to the u.s uh escaped nazi germany uh, i don't know if they knew each other but i'd be surprised if they if they didn't so clearly the theme about the this omnipotent machine and the city as an inhuman machine that's clearly the same in modern times the they go in different directions, though, because in Metropolis, there is this sort of fantasy that remains there that you can actually unite the interests of the different classes and the sort of hope. In modern times, as we just discussed, they, the only hope is exit in the end. You have to escape. Yeah, I think it would be remiss of us not to discuss the final scene in City Lights, given it's you know, such a powerful scene, one of the great moments in cinematic history. But... It's actually quite a tragic film from that very perspective because um, the the blind flower girl falls in love with someone who she thinks is a gentleman. She first hears a, do- a car door slamming shut, and and that and from then on she thinks it's a gentleman, but it isn't a gentleman. It's a tramp. And the the, the final scene where they're kind of face to face, where he realizes that it, there's a long scene where you know he realize he is realizing she will soon realize that, and then she tries to give him money at the very end of the film. And she tries to give him a farthing, and eventually she touches him and realizes that he's uh, the one who's helped her throughout the whole film. And then you just it zooms on his face, and you don't know you can't really read his face, which is why it's such brilliant acting. You don't it ends in complete uncertainty. But she, but but we know that her hopes have been throughout the film that there was this prince to rescue her. That there was this fairy tale ending, this Hollywood ending, and there is no Hollywood ending. It's it's a reverse prince into a frog situation and you know whatever else we know about the film we can be pretty sure that viewers putting themselves in the shoes of the flower girl would have rather that it were the rich gentleman who walked into the shop five minutes earlier than the tramp however much they laugh at the tramp and in that respect it's a more mature much more mature film than the gold rush which has this sort of fairy tale ending right he gets rich the girl recognizes him they meet and so on uh, City Lights is much truer, and we haven't actually mentioned that we should say it. City Lights, 1931, two years into the Great Depression, the gold rush was during the bubble, and that must count for something. I mean, the social atmosphere has completely transformed, uh, much less hope. And, uh, I mean, it's even worse than the way you describe it, because when they, when she sees him at the end, so she's had the operation, she now sees this tramp outside the shop window where she now works, and she and the other shop girls laugh at him because he's such a miserable, funny-looking little tramp. And he's sitting there completely besotted, seeing her again because he had sort of lost her, didn't know where she was. And she laughs to the others and say, well, not, not with voice, but with these um, you know, the written captions, 
I, I, you know, I think he's fallen in love with me. Ha ha ha. You know, obviously somebody of a different social status. And then when they, um, when she gives him the money and touches his hands and recognizes him through the touch, she's, she freezes. And he says, so the tramp says, you can see now. And she says, yes, I can see now. And that's where it ends. So what does that mean? She sees something. What is it she sees? I, I, I think there's something of the audience seeing themselves in her there where for for 90 minutes we've been laughing at this character we've been laughing at this character throughout all these films what does our laughter really mean is there a cruelty in our laughter like the the very naked cruelty at the end of that film but the, the, the you're right the piercing line is where she says to her friends i think i've got an admirer here which is also what georgia says in the gold rush and it's that um it's that talking about him as though he's not there that is the kind of the cruelest thing about it which is as the audience, precisely what we're doing is what we're doing now. It's there's an idea of a of a human being created created in these films who you know exists in the absence of him ever being a meaningful object of our of our discourse. The film we've not discussed, which people probably know by Charlie Jump from, is The Great Dictator. And the very end of that film, when he gives this speech, is almost like he steps out of that Trump role when he does become a meaningful figure in, as you say, our discourse. And it's not funny. At all. It's very, very heartfelt. It's very, very... It's a mix of optimism and pessimism, both quite profound optimism and quite profound pessimism, in saying, you know, in that film, his love interest is a girl called Hannah, and he's speaking on and he says, you know, the human spirit is soaring, human spirit is soaring, you can hear my voice, because in that film, he is sent to a concentration camp. So it's, it's a lot... It's even bleaker than the other ones, and you can sort of see through these films that pessimism coming through... And then the very end, the Hannah, I think, in the very end of Great Dictator, she just collapses on the floor. What I found really interesting, though, is that in the speech, there is a real emphasis on the machine situation. Like, the speech focuses very much on, like, we must be pro-progress, but we must not be pro-progress at any cost, that we must not be, like, these uh, men of machines. Um, and uh, I think... That's a really interesting connection, mainly because before the whole like you know technological disruption that we've started to see these days, um, I don't think we would have necessarily have zoomed in on that as much as some other aspects of the uh, fascist uh, forewarnings that were being put through in that speech. Whereas I now, in hindsight, and with respect to everything that's going on now, you know, there's a you know he's saying machinery that gives abundance has left us in want our knowledge has made us cynical our cleverness hard and unkind we think too much and feel too little more than machinery we need humanity more than cleverness we need kindness and gentleness without these qualities life will be violent and all will be lost now perhaps this is a good time to bring in what i think are uh, some interesting parallels with the trump phenomenon because you know to some degree i'm going to put the put forward the case that Trump has maybe, I mean, probably totally unwittingly, harnessed much of the Chaplin mentality. He portrays himself very much the clown 
as well. We see this continuous inconsistency. We see this continuous of playing to the crowds, uh, taking, you know, the crowd that knows him is with him. And then to the outsiders, the sort of neoliberal elite, they don't see him for what he is. They see him from the perspective of those that Chaplin would, in his own films, have mocked. And there's also some other interesting parallels. Chaplin was supposedly a big fan of FDR. He was a big fan of these New Deal movements. And, uh, you know, Mr. Trump is not necessarily going to build a Hoover Dam, but he might be building a wall. And we now can see the stimulus side of his policies and his appealing to the left behind, um, but also in a way that that resonates with them. So there's a bit of humanity, not just uh, pure um, uh, sort of appeal on the political front. What, what do you think of that? I, I'm in complete agreement with that. I mean, one of the consequences we talk about talks about uh, technological change. If you've got you know the work of art in an age of mechanical reproduction, a lot more people. One of the consequences: a lot more people consume that art, be it cinema, be it literature. That we've had this trajectory leading up to Chaplin of. Um, all kinds of concerns from intellectuals about the, the masses consuming art, what effect that has on them. There's this fear of the folly of the crowds uh, that comes to the fore in the Victorian era that um, some people reacted to Chaplin in along much the same lines. And a lot of people, if you read the way people um, criticise the results of the US election, the same themes are at play with fear of kind of this mass folly, this... These, these delusions. It's quite clear that, uh, that that Trump has succeeded in harnessing some of the same forces and some of the same turmoil that, that Chaplin made his art about. You mentioned the speech from the great dictator and some of the, uh, some of the words there would resonate perfectly today. Machinery that gives us abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical. I think there are a lot of people who voted for Trump who feel exactly that way. He even talks about mass communication and how it should bring us closer together, but it hasn't. What is Twitter and social media, right? But there's a very key difference, and that is just you have to contrast the meanness of Trump and his campaign with the kindness and that, that lies at the heart of this Trump, the Trump, <laughs> the Trump versus the Trump, the meanness of Trump versus the kindness of the Trump. I, I can see that point. On that note, though, I just want to very quickly uh, point to uh, a review, an early review of Chaplin in 1915 from an essayist uh, called Ben Hecht, who wrote this in Chicago. And he said of, Chap- of, of Chaplin's tramp, he is cruel, he is absurd, unmanly, tawdry, cheap, artificial. And yet beyond his crudities, his obscenities, his inartistic and outrageous contortions, his divinity shines. He's the mob god. He's a child and a clown. He's a gutter snipe and an artist. He's the incarnation of the latent, imperfect and childlike genius that lies buried underneath the fibreless flesh of his worshippers. They have created him in their image. He is the mob on two legs. They love him and laugh. It's Chaplin. It's also Trump, isn't it? I think Martin is so um, so flabbergasted by that. <laughs> he has no reaction. <laughs> 1915 is important because the, the, the character did develop from these very crude slapstick movies of the first couple of years towards the much more morally complex character that, uh, that Gavin also talked about in the, in the 20s, especially the 30s. I mean, I think there are two sides to clowning, right? There are, like, there are two sides to theatre and to art and to humanity. There's a dark side and there's a light side. And uh, I think the best of Chaplin, at least, points us to that lighter side.
So unfortunately, we're coming to an end uh, in terms of our timing here in the podcast suite. So we've got to call it a day. But I mean, I feel we only just scratched the surface and perhaps we can come back one day and discuss these themes again. But for now, sadly, I think on that Trump versus Trump note, we're going to have to say goodbye. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Thanks. Bye. Uh, Goodbye. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. Please let us know what you think. Uh, you can email us at alphachat at ft.com or give us a call at plus one nine one seven five five one five zero one two. And uh, please rate the show on iTunes. It really helps other people find it. Alpha Chat will be taking a brief break next week for US Thanksgiving, but Cardiff will be back the following week. <laughs>